0: Welcome into It's in Sportsmanlike Conduct on KALA HD2 and the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howell. With me, as always, is David Meyer. David, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing great. Real excited to get into tonight's show. And like we've been starting here recently, we're going to go ahead and start with our Athlete of the Week. And so all month, month of June, we've looked at the best number sixes in each of the respective sports. And this week is finally the great Bill Russell. He's our final Athlete of the Week for this month. Russell was a Boston Celtic for 13 seasons and absolutely left his mark on the NBA. He won 11 NBA championships and was All-NBA 11 times. He was an All-Star, 12 more of those as well. Russell also was a five-time MVP. He averaged 15.1 points per game and a whopping 22.5 rebounds per game. And 4.3 assists over his career, so not too bad there either. Russell also had a Finals MVP named after him. It's a Bill Russell award, and he was inducted in the Hall of Fame in 1975. So next week, we're going to, next Monday, I should say, we're going to go ahead and start taking a look at the best MLB All-Star game performances. But now talking about Bill Russell a little bit, I went through all these accolades, all these things, that, great things that he's done in the league. Has the Finals MVP named after him? why is he not in most people's conversations in terms of the greatest basketball player of all time? When you, that conversation comes out, it's Jordan, it's LeBron. Why aren't we talking about Bill Russell?
1: I think there are two main reasons. Uh, one, he wasn't super offensively gifted. He was, he was a center. He was, his main point of the game was not really scoring points. It was playing defense and getting rebounds, which is most mostly the job of the center. Uh, He did that fantastically, but people want to see you score points. That's just the reality of the NBA, of any sport at all. They want points, and that's what's going to be the biggest factor. And I think another part of it is he was just just built different. I kind of hate that phrase, but... He was physically a lot different than the average NBA player was at that time. He was a decent bit taller than the average center and just more muscular and bigger. So he could really just bully anyone he wanted in the paint. And I think that he was the first to do that. People didn't really appreciate it at the time. And it's hard to kind of go back and see how that could compare to today. Yeah,
0: and when you look at it, too, Bill Russell, he played a long time ago at this point. And when you think about it, a lot of people today grew up watching Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James. So also I think it some of that recency bias comes into play when you're thinking about the greatest basketball players of all time. When you look at it, too, we talk about Jordan and LeBron. That debate normally is argued, and the final point made is championships. So that's another reason why I find it interesting that we don't talk about Bill Bill Russell. He was an 11-time NBA champion. And I agree with you 100% in terms of offense. And that's just what fans in the NBA today like. They like offense. They like scoring. And that's why we've seen the league shift. It's a shooting league. If you can't shoot, you're not going to be respected as one of the better players in the league. And that's just the way it is. We're talking about Ben Simmons. We've been talking about him for two weeks now. As a player that might get traded this offseason because he has a lack of a jump shot, but he's phenomenal in other areas. So at the end of the day, if you're not scoring a ton of points and not many people today actually got to see you play basketball, you're never going to be in that conversation. And I think that's what's happened to Bill Russell. He's one of those guys that when you watch him play, did fantastic things. Probably had a great highlight reel, but it's nothing like what people have seen today with LeBron and Jordan. That's what people are always going to go to at the end of the day. So yesterday, talking about basketball a little bit more here, was Kawhi Leonard's birthday. And Kawhi Leonard turned 30 yesterday, currently not playing in the series right now against the Suns. And Leonard, currently in the NBA today, is one of the best defenders, and it backs it up with all the accolades that he's gotten defensively. He's made the all-defensive team six times and has won Defensive Player of the Year twice. Leonard also has two NBA championships, one with the Spurs, one with the Raptors, and he was the final MVP in both of those series. The five-time All-Star is currently an LA Clipper, like I said, with the player option upcoming this summer. Leonard's built a fine career so far, and he's going to look to improve that going into next season quite possibly because it's not looking like he's coming back this season. But that just a happy birthday to Kawhi Leonard, and now looking at Leonard in terms of what he's done and what he's going to do. Still, just turned 30 years old. Do you think why Leonard wins another championship before he calls it quits?
1: I think he does. He has the longevity and overall health history to go another five, six years, maybe more if he wanted to. And he's coming into most likely free agency. If he doesn't, he has one more year with the Clippers and then free agency. Uh, so he has the option to be on essentially whatever team he wants and right now it looks like he wants to win a ring as most players do so he's probably going to go to a team that is poised for a championship run what team that will be I'm not really sure but I think he does win another championship before he's done
0: when I looked at it we talked about a few weeks ago is Kawhi Leonard going to leave after this run that we've seen the Clippers go on here, fantastic performances by Paul George, something that he hasn't done in years, I don't. I just can't picture him leaving right now because things are looking so up for the Clippers currently. When you look at this team, Paul George is playing some of the best basketball he's played. He's played, when you look at the minutes-wise, far more minutes than anyone else this postseason. He's out there. And then the rest of this team also, I mean, these role players are stepping up in a huge way. For this Clippers team, something that wasn't really going on the last two years when Kawhi was on the court. Now, what you attribute that to, that's a different discussion. But, with the way the Clippers are going right now, I just can't picture Kawhi taking that option and leaving. So, I figure he stays with the Clippers in my decision here. And I just don't see it. I I just don't see Kawhi winning another one. When you look at what he did when he won with the Spurs, he was a great player. But it was his defense that helped him get that Finals MVP award. It was him going up against LeBron, and that's why he got that award. So Spurs win. I mean, Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili, they had fantastic players on that team, and Greg Popovich, arguably the best coach in NBA history. You had quite a bit around him at that point. Still a young player. Then he goes to Toronto, and I look at that Toronto championship and he just rolled right through the Eastern Conference, and as well he should have. The The Eastern Conference was pretty weak that year. LeBron had left, so the Cavs were really nothing. They did go to seven with the Sixers, and he came up with a clutch shot to win it. But when I look at that final series, if Durant plays, if Clay plays, the Raptors don't win that series. The one game that Kevin Durant tried to play in The Warriors took a pretty big lead before he had got hurt, and then he had to come back out, and then it was just downhill. You could tell the series was over at that point. So while I'm looking at these championships he's won, he's not necessarily, with the Raptors, he was the best player, but injuries kind of clouded that championship a little bit. And with the Spurs, he wasn't the best player on the court. I mean, I'm not willing to say he played better than Tim Duncan, who's just a great, an NBA great. So for me, I'm going to say no. But it will be interesting to watch. I mean, he's a fantastic player one of the best top five players in the league, without a doubt. And so now, I believe you have a trivia question. We'll see how well I do with the Kawhi Leonard trivia here.
1: Absolutely. I, I get the honor of hitting you with some trivia. Uh, in his time in college at San Diego State University, how far did he make it in the March Madness tournament? Or how far was he able to bring his team That's a tough one. Uh, I'm going to go with the guess here. I'm I'm not 100% sure. I'm going to say the Elite
0: Eight. Ooh, close. It was the Sweet 16, but only one round off. That was going to be my next guest. I promise. I promise. So now, also today in sports, Sandy Koufax threw his first no-hitter of his career in 1962. Koufax was a member of the Los Angeles Dodgers. He was pitching against a reeling New York Mets team, and he took full advantage. Koufax's final stats were nine innings played, no hits or runs, and no earned. Koufax walked five in the game, but he did strike out 13. The Dodgers would go on to win that game 5 to nothing. So now I have a trivia question for you about Sandy Koufax. So the number three comes up quite a bit in Sandy Koufax's career. He has three accolades that he has won three of throughout his career. So three different accolades he's won three times. In his career. Can you
1: name what those three are? All right. Three Cy Youngs. Yep. Uh Three uh, World Series. uh uh-huh. And three Triple Crowns. Absolutely. That is it. Absolutely. And so that was a major factor in his career. So
0: that's Sandy Koufax, what he did today in sports. A fantastic pitcher. But now it's time to get into our NBA talk here. NBA really prevalent right now. New coaches, playoffs, conference finals going on. And speaking of new coaches, we have Chauncey Billups. He was hired as the new Portland Blazers coach. So now
1: looking at this move, do you like them hiring
0: Chauncey Billups?
1: I'm not a big fan of this hire. I think he just isn't the move right now. You're in a very transitional period. You're not sure if your star is going to stay. You don't know what pieces you can add to this roster. And you really do you don't have an identity, and bringing in a first-time head coach, they want to establish an identity, but they don't have the respect or the, uh, the experience that comes with having just past experience as a coach. So I think he's going to have a hard time in the locker room kind of uh, leading that, and I'm not sure how, how that's, this acquisition is going to go for the Blazers.
0: Billups was a coach that I liked in the hiring process. He was someone that I thought would be a nice hire somewhere with the Blazers. I'm not ready to say if I like it quite yet or not because of one reason I need to know. Did Damian Lillard have a say in this? Was he involved? Is this who he wanted? If this is who Damian Lillard wanted, absolutely. I love the move just because at the end of the day, you well, you need to keep Damian Lillard around. So keep him happy in any way possible And obviously we've seen that you give him a say in who the coach is, he's going to be pretty happy in terms of sticking around. So for me, Billups, I like how he's a former player. That's something that's really starting to take on the NBA, these former players coming in. He had success in the NBA. So I'd like it, but I need to know if Damian Lillard is the one who wanted it because that makes me love the move, if that's the case. And now speaking of Damian Lillard, do you think he sticks around now that they do add Chauncey Billups?
1: I don't think so. Maybe he sticks around for part of this this next season, uh, the 2021-2022 season. But as of right now, if I were him, I would want to be somewhere else. This team hasn't showed me really anything of being able to win, being able to put a contending team around you, yeah, you're going to be the star player, but you want to have at least some competent players around you. There isn't a whole lot there. And a first-time head coach, it's not my favorite thing. If Damian Lillard had a say in it, it'll probably uh, sway him towards staying. But as of right now, I predict he's not going to be a trailblazer by the end of next season. Yeah, with... That with Damian Lillard, I think it's just a matter of when.
0: Not necessarily will he. It's just when at this point. And I think this hire may buy the Blazers more time. And what I mean by that is it could be next offseason or it could be towards a trade deadline. He starts to be like, okay, hey, this isn't working out. And when you look at Damian Lillard, he's done everything the right way his whole entire career for the Blazers. He's been a fantastic player for him. He's developed into one of the best players in the NBA. I would put him as a top three shooter in the league right now. And so I think it just buys you more time because now you have some new stability, a new head coach, and now you get to see what he does this offseason. You get to see what the front office does. Do they actually change? Is there actually going to be change within this organization? So does it help them keep him? Yes, I think it does help, but it's just a matter of when for me, he's going to get moved. It's just a matter of when I think this just extends your time a little bit. That's all this move does for the Blazers because I don't think Dame wins a championship in Portland and he's looking at all these other opportunities out there for him and he could go pair up with another top five, top 10 player in the NBA. And would he be way way better off? Absolutely. It would be a great move for him. So now looking at Chauncey Billups, taking over this Blazers team, we talked about some of their issues, what should be his first move as the head coach?
1: Do anything and everything you can to get Damian Lillard to stay. That is step one, two, and three of helping this team be decent. You need Damian Lillard to stay. That, that's pretty much it. That's the first move he has to do as a coach. I'm not sure exactly what that entails. I know it means you have to bring in more talent around him but what specific players I'm not sure that's that's kind of his problem Uh, but they definitely need just more everything on that team to put around Damian Lillard
0: yeah you're absolutely right I'm gonna say his first thing he needs to do when he gets them building obviously yes it's going to be talk to Damian Lillard figure things out see if he's going to stick around But the first thing he needs to do as a head coach is he needs to come in, evaluate this roster, and start moving guys right away. A guy like CJ McCollum, I know he has a good rapport with Damian Lillard. He's been around for a while with the Trailblazers. He didn't show up the last couple of postseasons. He's not a consistent player. Does he give you some valuable minutes? Absolutely. But in terms of a number two player on your NBA team, he's not that. I'm moving him in any way possible. Starting to clear out some space, starting to try to put something together. Because you need to send a message to Dame that, hey, we're fixing this. We're gonna we're gonna write the ship for you. So I'm moving, CJ McCollum, and I'm looking for free agents that are gonna help this team out right away. I don't think it's all that great of a free agency class. It's you're not gonna find a number two unless Kawhi does decline his option. You're not going to find a number two player. Maybe you try to swing a big trade. C.J. McCollum, he has trade value. You can make a trade for him, but I think that has to be your first move. Try to trade McCollum and try to improve that number 2 spot right away with this team. And I talked about retired players starting to become coaches more often. We've seen it the last couple of years. Jason Kidd just got hired, Chauncey Billups, Steve Nash, among others. Do you think that this is becoming the norm in the NBA?
1: Yeah, I think so. It's definitely more common there were there've been a number of players that made the jump from uh player to coach just two off the top of my head Larry Bird and Magic Johnson both went on the coach uh but i think the difference now is there's is less of a gap between the player retiring and then becoming a coach there it's it's not instantly but it's 3 to 4 years and i i like it because they know the game as it is right now they know how it's being played it's been a couple years but you still have a very good sense of when or what is going on around the league and the current play style so I think that leads them to be better coaches yeah and
0: I think it's becoming the norm too because it's successful when you look at you look at the last seven years in terms of the better better records for coaches. You look at Ty Lue. You look at Steve Kerr. Both former players that have been fantastic coaches. They have championships. Their teams are successful. Yes, they have great players. But you look at Steve Kerr when he took over for the Warriors. He took them to the next step. Mark Jackson couldn't get them to that point. But he took them to the next step. Speaking of coaches, Mark Jackson, a former player. And then you look at Ty Lue. He takes over for David Blatt, takes the Cavs to the next step, wins the championship, successful team with the Cavaliers, and now coaching the Clippers, the Clippers have taken that next step. I mean, they were struggling to get out of round one and couldn't even picture them getting out of round two, and here they are in the conference finals with a real opportunity to try to get to the finals. So I think it's becoming the norm, and I like it because when you look at what these player coaches can do, one, instantly, I think it helps you win over the locker room. These coaches have been there where these players are at. They know what messages need to be sent to these players. When you have coaches who've never played necessarily the sport, there is a little disconnect there. You could be a player's coach, but there's a disconnect when you never actually played the sport, know the moments. That's what these guys have, and I think that's why it's becoming the norm because when I mean, you look at the NBA, it's so star-heavy, stars moving all the time. You need someone to truly connect with your stars and keep them around. I think that's what these player coaches are going to do. I think that's why the Blazers brought in Chauncey Billups. Try to talk to Dame and try to get him to stick around. So I I like it. I think it's going to be fascinating. And, and it's another way to keep uh, fans' favorite players around the game. It keeps them around. So speaking of the player coaches, we'll go on to another one that I brought up. Jason Kidd was hired as the Mavericks coach. He used to play
1: for the Dallas Mavericks as well. Do you like this move? I, I'm i not a big fan of this one either. Uh he didn't have the best track record in his uh, past coaching career uh, with the Bucks and the Nets. I think his biggest problem right now is similar to the reason why Michael Jordan can't really be a coach. He expects perfection. He's just so good of a player that he has these, this incredibly high standard for himself that he can live up to. But for other people, it's just not feasible. So he gets very uh, intense. That's reportedly he gets very intense and a little aggressive about just working hard and doing exactly the right thing. And that's rubs some players the wrong way. I, I'm not a big fan of that personally. Uh, so I just don't think that's the right... It, there are times when that is the right person to bring in. But right now, when there's a lot of things in flux, you don't know how Luca feels about the team, how he feels about Kristaps, and a lot of just uncertainties. And you add basically kind of heat to that. I don't. I'm not a big fan. I think this is going to go very poorly.
0: Yeah, I I agree, and I think what it is, it's a boom or bust hire here. Jason Kidd was one of the hotter names in the coaching cycle. The Lakers brought him on as the assistant coach under Frank Vogel in hopes of eventually making him the head coach. That was the original plan for the Lakers, but Frank Vogel's had some success, won a championship, so they're not ready to move on from him quite yet. So Kidd goes and finds a new team. When I looked at it originally, I wasn't the biggest fan right off the bat. Just seeing they hired him, I was like, I'm not a huge fan of that move. I'm really not. And then I look at it a little bit more. I'm not the biggest fan. But I see kind of what you're trying to do with the hire. When you look at his coaching record, it's not the greatest, but he was 500 or better in four out of his five seasons. So it's not too bad, but it's not a whole whole lot better than 500. He's kind of right on the border in terms of his wins. But what I really think this can help out is Jason Kidd is a guy that he's going to rub some people the wrong way, like you said. But I think in terms of this Mavericks team, They needed something different. They needed, I think they might need someone like that. Someone to demand perfection because Luca is in front of the Mavericks' eyes, turning into one of the best players in the NBA. Keep him afloat and start to demand better from those guys around him. You got Chris Stops, who's not playing fantastic, didn't play great, been hurt. Start demanding perfection from him. We traded a lot to go get you. We paid you a big contract. It's time that you start putting up those type of numbers. So I think that could be one thing that helps out this team. And also when you look at it, Jason Kidd has history with the organization. Obviously won a championship in 2011 with them. If you're trying to hire a new coach, Jason Kidd's hot name out in the cycle. And when I look through the available coaches, there wasn't a whole lot that I really liked this cycle. But bringing him back to the organization, like I talked about earlier, it's exciting it's something exciting for the fans something different and if things do go poorly and Luca does decide hey I'm not sticking around we're not gonna do this anymore could you pin that on him a little bit possibly you possibly could you can look at that and say hey he's not a whole lot better than 500 and he's not that great as a coach it's his fault we'll we'll make a change so I think it could be a move to try to pin as well and now, looking at Jason Kidd here, do you think he helps Luca develop at all?
1: Uh, I think he can help him with a couple things, but really I see kind of two scenarios here. One, uh, the bad option, essentially. Uh, Luca also has kind of an intense, fiery personality. Those normally don't go well together. So the first option, or the first scenario, is them getting in screaming matches. Uh, And that's just not good for team chemistry, for getting stuff done, practices. It's just bad. On the other side, if Jason Kidd is, like, a stricter coach, really comes down on the players hard, that creates unity on the team. A a shared enemy is a, a tactic that coaches use. And that, the main problem with the Mavs, is their locker rooms kind of a mess? If that brings them together, that can be very helpful. So it's, like you said earlier, it's boom or bust.
0: Yeah, and when I look at this move, one thing that instantly sticks out to me is Jason Kidd was is one of the most successful point, point guards, most successful guards in NBA history. And very recently, he was very successful at that too. When I look at it, I'm looking at Luca, and I'm looking at a player that right now is developing just fine and turning into a really good player. What can possibly take him to the next level? I think a hire like Jason Kidd could possibly do that if they can work it out correctly. If Luca can take his perfectionist and what he needs as a coach, what he demands of you, and Luca takes that the right way, I truly believe that Luca can take a next step. Because right now we have a player who's fantastic. And he's very successful, puts up crazy numbers, just not winning in the playoffs. Who does that kind of remind me of? Reminds me of LeBron in Cleveland the first time. And it took him going to Miami to really develop and evolve his game to become a champion. When you look at what he did in Miami, yes, he had Wade with him. Yes, he had Chris Bosh. But his game changed. And then you see his second time in Cleveland. He That was the best all-around LeBron James that anyone's ever seen. He was assist-wise, rebound-wise, total package. He had it all. He changed and developed as a player, and I think that's what Jason Kidd needs to do here with Luka is develop him into that all-around player because if he can flip that switch and really develop everything early on, that's going to be so scary for the league when you have guys like LeBron James, Kevin Durant, all getting older, Steph Curry getting older, Someone needs to step up and take their place, and if that works out, Luca can be that guy. And so now we're going to take a quick look here before we take our first break. At Dwayne Wade, he has concerns that Donovan Mitchell will leave the Jazz in the near future. Is this something that you think Jazz fans and the Jazz organization should be worrying about?
1: Absolutely. That's that's the curse of the small market team. You can draft well, bring in these superstar talents and have them play fantastically for you build a great team around them but in the end they can leave very easily for a more popular city, more money a better environment uh, city wise just it's hard to keep guys from leaving when you're a small market team and we I see it all the time in baseball. Guys leaving the Rays because they just don't want to be there or they trade him away because uh, he's asking for too much money. That could definitely be the case with Donovan Mitchell. That being said, if he does get traded away, the Jazz are going to get a massive haul back. Picks, young players, even more picks, just a lot. You don't want to see him leave, but you like what you're getting in return, if it happens.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's something to worry about. You have to worry about it. And when you look at with Donovan Mitchell, what he's done, the Jazz have a really nice team in place. They really do. They have nice depth, and you have Rudy Gobert, and he struggled against the Clippers, but he's normally a very well-rounded player for the Jazz when he's playing at his best. And it's still just not enough. They're just still not getting there. Donovan Mitchell's putting up all these crazy numbers. So absolutely, you need to be worried about it. And I think a lot of teams need to worry about their star players because at the end of the day, I mean, everybody wants to team up with somebody. We've talked about it endless amount of times. If you don't have two superstars, you're not winning. And Donovan Mitchell right now looking at Rudy Gobert saying, I could do better. I could do better. And you look at it, Mitchell showed up throughout the playoffs, and Gobert sometimes didn't. And he's like, okay, I want something more consistent, someone who can help me out in the long run. Yes, you have to worry about it. And I think it's just way the game is changing. I mean, everyone wants to go to the big markets. LeBron's out in L.A. Anthony Davis wanted, wanted to be in L.A. Paul George wanted to go to L.A. Kawhi Leonard wanted to go to L.A. Everybody wants the big market. Everybody wants to be in the spotlight for their teams. And that's the only way you can do that is to start to force trades. And once, once you saw a few players do it, it's really just been an avalanche of players forcing trades and wanting to leave and go to new places. So, yes, you have to be worried about it if you are the Jazz. We're going to take our first break here on Sportsmanlike Conduct. When we come back, we're going to keep on talking about Donovan Mitchell before we get into the postseason conference finals basketball that we have. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back into In Sportsmanlike Conduct on KLA, HG2, and the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howell. With me, as always, is David Meyer. And before we went to break, we were talking about Donovan Mitchell on the Utah Jazz and Dwayne Wade being worried that he might leave. And so now looking, the Jazz team that's in place right now is a good team, good depth. You have Rudy Gobert. It's a talented, talented roster. I'd say one of the deepest in the NBA. Do they truly have a shot, even with Donovan Mitchell, to
1: actually represent the West, though? I think they do. Uh, they're they're so close to it. They unfortunately ran into a hot Clippers team, but I think they really can represent the West, and it's, it's a tough conference, to be sure. But just like almost every team in this league, probably besides the Nets, One more star. One more very good scorer. And I think this is going to be one of the best teams in the West. It was the best team in the West this year. Uh, Top five in defensive efficiency. Top five in offensive efficiency. They just need more of that clutch factor. And kind of that intangible star stuff that only a star can bring to the team.
0: Yeah, and... I think a star is needed as well because currently with the team they have currently, I don't think they will, they would represent the West because I like what they have. But when you look at it, I mean, they ran into Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, and you got a duo like that. And then if also, okay, you get past them, you still want to make it. You run into a Devin Booker, Chris Paul, then you run into guys like LeBron, Anthony Davis, and that's just how the West goes. And next year you're going to have Steph and Clay back together. They had all these really good duos, and they all step up in the big moments, help each other out. Donovan Mitchell doesn't have that. He doesn't have that next guy. I mean, it's great to have depth, but the way the NBA is built today, these teams that are winning championships aren't deep rosters. It's pretty top-heavy teams, and the most successful ones, that's the way it is. So I think, get another score, another elite type of guy, it doesn't have to be a Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, LeBron, Anthony Davis. You don't need... That type of guy with Donovan Mitchell, would it be nice? Absolutely, but that's not what you necessarily need. You just need an elite player on this team. Doesn't have to be the best, but an elite player on this team, and they will be fantastic. I just don't, I question can they attract that? Then I also question can you attract it quick enough before Donovan Mitchell decides I'm going to follow Damian Lillard's path, Anthony Davis's path, and try to go elsewhere. I think those are just big question question marks the Jazz have. And when you look at it, after these last two postseasons they've had, question marks should be around this team. I mean, they get to the postseason, they're good teams. Donovan Mitchell plays red hot, and they still lose. So I think those are valid questions right now that the Jazz have to answer. And now looking at the Eastern Conference Finals, the Atlanta Hawks tie the series up with the 76ers, or with the Bucks, excuse me, at two a piece. The Hawks found a way to win without Trey. And we talked about it the other night. That I'm pretty surprised that this team won without Trey. Is this Hawks team better all around than they're actually getting credit for?
1: I think they are. I There were a couple guys I didn't think were as good as they have turned out to be. Uh, a couple guys really stepped up. Uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich, obviously. Clint Capella, for me, the biggest surprise was Lou Williams. I knew he was a solid player, a good six-man, but he really showed that he can carry an, uh, a starter's offensive load, and he was out there and played well. Uh, they have a good amount of depth on this team and are overall pretty solid. There's definitely work to be done on defense, but Clint Capella makes up for that a lot. Uh, so I think they are a little underrated. They don't get as much credit as they should, but Trey Young is really the centerpiece of this team.
0: Yeah. Trey Young's really starting to take the league over in terms of he's become the face of the Hawks and he's becoming a top five point guard right in front of our eyes. And when you look at it, I agree with you. This Hawks team is better than they've been getting the credit for. And I had them getting knocked out first round. You had them getting knocked out second round. I didn't expect them to make it this far, and especially be 2-2 with the Milwaukee Bucks, who are, is a really good team at that. I mean, they have a lot of good players, and you have Giannis, two-time MVP on your team. But when you look at this team, Lou Williams is a guy that a lot of people forget he can do things like he did last night because he does want to win that Sixth man of the year award, and he's been on some good teams where he can do that, and he can be that role. In big moments and crunch time for these teams that he's played with, and he's been the sixth man, in quotes. He's playing valuable minutes at the end. So when he stepped up last night, I wasn't too surprised by it because I expect that from Lou Williams. And you, and players around the league also recognize that. Draymond Green, actually before the game, he said, watch out for Lou Williams because he can go off tonight for the Hawks. Don't count. The Bucks can't count the Hawks out just because Trey Young's out. And you look at it, Lou Williams, he played really well. And what I loved from this Hawks team is just the all-around basketball. When everyone was counting them out, and they were actually the biggest underdogs in conference finals history, they go out there and take a massive win. 22 points. That's what they go out there and beat the Bucs by. I know Giannis got hurt in that game, but when Giannis was playing, they still had a 10-point-plus lead on this team. This Hawks team, they're a force to be reckoned with. Now, Will they get beat, if they make it, will they get beat by a Western Conference team? Inevitably. Because the Western Conference is just so much better than the Eastern Conference. But looking at this team, they need to get some more credit, some more respect. Because when we talk about top teams in the East going into next year, they need to be in everyone's top four, top five. They have to be. And a lot of people, you look at Trey Young, a lot of people count this team out. They're out there playing. They're all playing, you could say playing for Trey Young playing for their careers, doesn't matter. They're young. They're very good. They're a scary team. They need to get some more respect on the Atlanta Hawks. And now, I talked about Giannis going down with an injury. This whole postseason has been clouded with injuries. It's one of the most uh, most injured postseasons in history. It's Most recently, it's more injuries than in 2013 and 2019, which they had, I believe, six injuries apiece in those. When you look at it, Do you think that this quick turnaround for these teams is starting to play a factor now that we're getting this late into the season, and throughout this postseason, we're seeing all these
1: injuries? I think that's part of it, definitely. Uh, I think it's also, once you get into the postseason, your your rotation kind of shortens up, and your star players are going out there and playing 40-plus minutes a game for... 7 days With not a whole lot of rest uh, It's definitely A lot of strain on Your body as a whole And I think not having that gap As big of a gap to Recuperate in the off season Is is definitely not Helpful but I'm not sure If it's the biggest uh, Factor I think part of it is just People getting unlucky Guys get injured a lot I think this uh, this year, it just happens to be the stars. Uh, one stat that I find interesting, it's never happened that eight All-Stars in the playoffs have missed one postseason game in the same year. This is the first year that that's happened. Yeah, I
0: 100% agree. I'm going to say I do think it has to do with the quick turnaround and a good portion of it because, yes, luck is something that unlucky people... It happens. You get injured. And it's unfortunate. And what happens to your star players, you notice it a little bit more. I agree with that. When you look at this, though, what's going on, when you have a quick turnaround in an NBA season, already when a season was a little bit different, you have these players getting their bodies ready for this long season. The NBA, 82-game season plus playoff series after that, if you're playing late, that's a long season to begin with. Then you had to take last season, take a little break, come back. So now you're it kind of like a short season again because you got through most of the regular season. There's only, I believe, a week left, two weeks left in the NBA season when they shut down. Then you come back for a playoff run. So you got a little gap there, and then you're going again. And then a little gap again and now you're into a new season. And you're already going. And I think it's starting to happen to these star players because Who's playing the big minutes in these games late in the playoffs? It's these stars. They're the ones that are playing these big minutes come postseason time, come the end of the season. So I do think that quick turnaround takes a toll on these players' body because they didn't have the proper time to get ready. And, yes, there are some injuries that are unlucky, but I think their bodies not being totally prepared for this season is starting to lead to – it's making them – the odds not in their favor. It's starting to – they're becoming more unlucky because – of what happened in the offseason, that shortened off season. So I do think it's starting to it's starting to pinpoint. Okay. You look at you have a really quick start and now it's a historic injury postseason. I think you do have to start to point to that and say I think that has to do with it. And now looking at both these teams, Trey Young, he's still up in the air if he'll play next game. And then also Giannis will not, it's looking unlikely. He's doubtful for this next game. Who's in more trouble? The Hawks without Trey Young or the Bucks without Giannis?
1: I think it's the Bucks without Giannis. These are it's the best players. Each is the best player on their respective team. So it's a huge blow to both of them. But what I saw from the Hawks without Trey Young was great ball movement. Moving off the ball, setting off ball screens, uh, pick and rolls, handoff plays, a lot of movement. And that's the exact opposite with the Bucks. It's pretty much all isos and very little else. And ball movement wins pretty much every time. And without your probably best iso player in Giannis and your best defender, one of your, I'd say up there for best rebounders, your that's that's a huge loss. Trey Young puts up a lot of points, a good passer, but he doesn't bring a whole lot on defense. I think I think uh that Giannis is a bigger loss for the Bucks and I just want to like toot my own horn cuz looks like this series could go the distance. I predicted Hawks in 7 last week. <laughs> could it be?
0: And I agree with you. It's got to be the Bucs. And when you look at it in terms of ball movement, what the Hawks are able to do, that was fantastic. And I am interested to see if that happens with this Bucks team. Now that they're forced into a situation without Giannis, if we see them start ball movement and not as much ISO, I know that's kind of what the Bucks like to do, but if they can start to change that a little bit, will it force their hand? Do they have to do it? It's a question. It's a legitimate question when you think about this Bucks team and what they're going to do. But when I look at this Hawks team, you're losing Trey Young, but you insert six, multiple times six man of the year and a guy who could be in a starting lineup for most NBA teams, Lou Williams. Okay? I like that. I think we can get by. I look at this Bucs team, take out Giannis. There's not really much depth behind the starting lineup for this Bucs team. Who's going to step in to that role? You already have your consistent starting lineup, but outside of that starting lineup, who's going to step up and take take on Giannis's role. I can't find that like I can with the Hawks. I can pinpoint Lou Williams can take over. He can get you by. You're not going to be as good of a team, but he can get you by. With the Bucks, I'm struggling to find that, and I think at the end of the day, it's going to make Giannis the bigger miss for this team. And now looking at the Western Conference Finals, the Clippers keep the series alive and make it a 3-2 series against the Phoenix Suns. PG has had a fantastic postseason. He's been criticized by the media. He's been criticized by me. And at this point, do you think it is unfair that he was criticized so much?
1: I think a little bit. He has had some uh, unwarranted criticism. I think a decent part of that is because of the player he used to be and how good he was for the Pacers and then how bad he was. In the playoffs for the Clippers last year, that's a a big reason why that recency bias. He's kind of turned back the clock a little bit and uh, shown what he can do, but there's also games where he's just very inefficient. He's putting up a lot of points, but the efficiency just isn't there. And I think probably the largest portion of the reason he's grading... Getting criticized for his playing the playoffs is because of his nickname. When you give yourself a nickname, you're gonna get made fun of. Playoff P, just not a good idea.
0: No, it really isn't. And looking at it, I'm gonna defend myself here. I don't think it's he was unfairly criticized. He's starting to play playoff basketball like we expect Paul George. He should have been criticized for the poor play he had. If Paul George would have played this postseason like he had his past three postseason runs, the Clippers would have been gone already, already knocked out. Did he use that as fuel to help him get going in this series? Absolutely, probably, and that's why we've seen the Clippers stay alive. Paul George is playing like Paul George. so to For the fact that he's unfairly criticized, like DeMarcus Cousins said, I don't think so. I think it's been fair, but now he's playing like he should. This Paul George is the Paul George we all know and love. So where has that been? That's a question for him. But until you got to that level, you forced your way to the Clippers, you were supposed to be this big star with Kawhi Leonard, you should be criticized if your team's getting balanced in the playoffs and not even making it to this Lakers squad last season. If you're not getting to the conference finals each year with this team, it's a, it's a failure, and the way we're looking at it right now, if Kawhi Leonard was healthy, I'd be saying if you don't make it to the finals, don't win a championship, it should be a failure. So no, I don't think he was unfairly criticized. Defending myself, just a little bit there, but he has impressed me. He's played fantastic this postseason. It shocked me, and it shocked many in the media, so I will give him all the credit in the world for that. He's now, if depending on how this playoff ends, well, also looking at it, he had missed two free throws. Could have a tied series, if not leading the series, right now for him. But I'm not going to bring that up. Paul George, I think he was fairly criticized. But right now, he's proving the haters wrong. And that's what every athlete should aim to do. And now, looking at this Clippers team, who do you think has really shined the most
1: since Kawhi's had to go down? I think the easy answer here is Paul George. But we knew he was capable of this. So I'm going to say it's Reggie Jackson. I've been a big Reggie Jackson fan, at least his product on the court. I've been a fan of that since he was uh, back in Kansas City, Kansas City, Oklahoma City. There we go. Uh, I've been a big fan of him for a while, and I think he's really showing he's not just a six-man. He can be a possibly all-star level point guard if he gets the minutes and if... The team is working well with him. So I'm going to say it's Reggie Jackson. He's really showed out with the absence of Kawhi Leonard. Yeah, when you look
0: at it, I think Paul George, I think Reggie Jackson, all great ones. I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction for the sake of argument on this one. A couple of guys that stick out to me. One, Marcus Morris. He's really started to step up and be consistent with that. I mean, you look at the final box score in most of these games, he's 20-plus in a lot of them. He's starting to step up. He's playing well. Another guy, Terrence Mann. He stepped up huge in big moments for this team, trying to take out the Jazz, scores 39 points, puts up big numbers. And he hasn't put that up since, a 39-point game, but a consistent around 10 points a game. For a second-year guy for the Clippers, they'll take that right now in the postseason. They need as many of those type of players they can get until Kawhi Leonard gets back. And another guy I want to give some props to starting to be healthy and starting to play a little bit is DeMarcus Cousins. He's starting to play a little bit. And when you look at it, everything's starting to really come together for this Clippers team. And it's not surprising because they are a good team. They had some pretty decent depth, and we're starting to see that with Kawhi out. But this team, I think those two free throws from Paul George are really going to haunt this team, really are going to because they closed that game out, steal one in Phoenix, and you look at the way it would be 3-2. Sixers right. I mean, 3-2 Clippers right now. Going into this next game and I'd say pretty confident at that point. 3-2, but it's not the way it's been. Instead, the Suns fell into their trap, went up 2-0, and so now the Clippers get to do their thing. So, now looking at this Clippers team, we talked about all these guys stepping up and playing well. Do you think the Clippers are better without Kawhi Leonard than they are with him?
1: I don't think so. I think this is the case of, or a case of, guys stepping up in the playoffs. We see it every so often. And like an unsung hero who comes in and really steps up and takes over. We saw that with Kawhi Leonard uh, when he was on the Spurs winning finals MVP. A lot of people didn't really know who he was and he comes out and wins or helps to win that series for the Spurs. But he's the rare exception because he continued that level of play all throughout his uh, continued career. But you see guys like Tyler Harrow, Duncan Robinson, who were great in the playoffs, are not doing so well in the regular season. So I think you can have those bigger games, but overall, the team just seasoned in total, they are worse off without Kawhi Leonard.
0: Yeah, I think when you look at it in terms of a talent standpoint, absolutely, they're a worse team without Kawhi Leonard. I don't know how you could say they are a better team talent-wise, but when I look at it in terms of what this team has done recently, I don't think they're a better team without Kawhi Leonard, but I do think that they play better team basketball down the stretch. I think as a team they've played a lot better than they have with Kawhi Leonard. Now could that be you know just starting to be big moments in the playoffs and they realize they need to step up? Yes. That could be it. But I also just think in terms of what Paul George has been doing, you don't have to feed Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Now it's just PG is going to get his shots. Everyone else is now role players and they get to step up as they need. It's not Kawhi and then Paul George and you have this Pyramid of, okay, it's him first, him first. You just are a better team all around. You have more, pe- more people playing, more people stepping up. I would say just right now, do you want Kawhi Leonard on the court? Yes, absolutely. Does he help you in this series? He, he does because he's a fantastic player. I mean, one of the best defenders in the league, and he's really developed a really nice mid-range three-point shot scorer. But pure team basketball right now, I think them playing – without him, it's going to help them all out in the long run. I think it's a little bit better than what Kawhi Leonard could do with this team right now. And so now this series, like I said, three, two playing again tonight. Should the Suns be worried that the Clippers are still hanging around in this series?
1: I think so. You always gotta be worried when a team is hanging around any, you can't give another team a chance because when you give them a chance, they can take it and run with it and beat you. That's what we saw happen to the Jazz. That's why they lost. Uh, the The Clippers have done it a couple times now. You let them hang around, and they come back down the stretch and beat you. That being said, I think the Suns are still going to take this one. Right now, the Clippers are being dragged up by the play of Paul George. If we If he has one game where he is not good, where he is uh, Paul George from last year, they're done. The Clippers are out. And I think he he's going to have a bad game either tonight or Game 7.
0: Yeah, and it makes it a little more worrisome too because the Clippers have done this pretty consistently now. Come back, down 2-0. So yes, it does make you a little more worrisome. But at the end of the day... I don't think the Suns as a team should be worried. Because right now, they're in the driver's seat up 3-2. A chance to close it out tonight. And you have an opportunity in Game 7. I don't think you should be worried. Because, I mean, that's just another factor that comes into this big game with you. Oh, okay, well, they tie the series up. It looks real rough. Just go out there. Play your brand of basketball. Know that you... I mean, on paper, you may not be the better team, but no, Devin Booker and Chris Paul are playing a lot better right now. than I, I would take Devin Booker and Chris Paul over anyone on the Clippers right now in terms of how they're playing right now in the postseason. I don't think you should be worried about it. Go out there, do your thing, know you're the better team, know you should come out on top. You are probably the hottest team in basketball. Start to cool down just a touch, but still very hot and could go off any, any given night. Go out there and close the series out tonight. 4-2 and put those questions to bed. We're going to take our second break here in Sportsmanlike Conduct. When we come back, we're going to get into our AFC West predictions this week and then also getting to some burning questions on this NFL offseason. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back into In Sportsmanlike Conduct on KALA, HD2, and the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howell. With me, as always, is David Meyer. And like I said before the break, we're going to get into our AFC West predictions here. We've gone division by division. We're going to take this all the way up to the start of the NFL season. So, the AFC West here, a lot of talented teams, a lot of younger teams in this
1: division as well. Who do you have coming in first place? I think it's the easy answer, and it's also the correct answer. Uh, Kansas City, just Patrick Mahomes, that offense is a juggernaut. Uh they improve the offensive line. They just are better now, I think, personnel-wise. So I have them going 13-4. and four. I think a couple of these games could swing either way. and But this is probably the best team, if not one of the best teams in the AFC, as well as just all of football. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anytime
0: Patrick Mahomes is on your team you're going to be really, really good as a football team. I've them coming in at 13-4, and when I look at this team, they got you talked about the offensive line where they got better. Orlando Brown Jr., huge pickup for this team, adding Joe Thune, and then also Creed Humphrey in the draft. I mean, those three alone, and you're also going to get DuVernay back on the offensive line. This offensive line is 10 times better than Patrick Mahomes has ever had in his career. You improved there. And then you look, okay, on the defense, you need to make some moves in the draft. Made some really nice additions. One addition that I want to point out is Nick Bolton, linebacker from Missouri. I like that pick a lot for this Chiefs defense. He's a really good athlete, and he's kind. he fits the mold of what teams are looking for from a linebacker now. A guy who's going to fly sideline to sideline, not necessarily the biggest guy, but he's going to fly sideline to sideline. You could put him in coverage. He's really kind of the hybrid linebacker that everyone looks for now. The Roquan Smiths, the Fred Warners, that hybrid. That is what they got with him. And I'm excited to see how he plays for this team. But anytime you have Tyreek Hill, Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, and now with the new redone O-line, I'm not betting against you whatsoever. I just have to put a couple losses down for this Chiefs team because they are going to drop a couple. We saw a few years ago they dropped one to Detroit that they shouldn't have. And then in Tennessee... So I think when you look at it, this Chiefs team is going to be successful. They're going to win the division again. I think the division got a little tougher now that Herbert and the Chargers are coming up. But I still think the Chiefs win the division and are still a top-two seed in the AFC. So now, who comes in second for you in your AFC West predictions?
1: For me, it's uh, the Chargers. There's a little bit of a drop-off. I think it's going to be a tough division, but as a whole... Just the remaining three teams are going to lose those coin flip games, those real close moments. So I have them all a little bit lower. So I have the Chargers at 9-8. and eight. It's another year of Justin Herbert. He was fantastic. Offensive Rookie of the Year. There is that slu- that sophomore slump that can happen. And I think it's possible. I'm not willing to bet on it. But just, I think there are some things they need to address on defense. And as always, the Chargers are a mess on special teams. They've had problems with that for years. And they really need to address that if they want to be a contender. This Chargers team, I have them coming in second
0: as well. I have them coming in at a record of 10-7 and seven on the year. And when I look at what they did this offseason... I like it. I like kind of what they've done. You look at, they brought in an all-pro center, Corey Lindsley, got him on a five-year deal. He was the best center in football last year. You found a way to get him on your team to help protect your young quarterback. I'm a fan of it. Then also, you look at, they they were able to bring back Michael Davis. He's an underrated corner on the, their team. He's really good man-to-man coverage, and I think that's exactly what the Chargers need. They like to play that 4-3 defense. Corners in a, in a cover three like that are going to play man-to-man. A lot. So getting Michael Davis back in that situation and also having the names you have, Chris Harris Jr. around on this team. You did lose Casey Hayward, but you still have Chris Harris. And then also you lose Hunter Henry. How do you fix that? How do you replace him? You bring in Jared Cook, who's also a good tight end. He's much older than Hunter Henry, but still a good tight end in the NFL. I liked these moves that they made. And the biggest one isn't even an addition to this team that they made this offseason. It's just Derwin James coming back for this defense. Derwin James is a fantastic safety, and a lot of people forget about him because he's been hurt the last couple of years, but he is really a do-it-all safety. Everyone talks about how great Jamal Adams is. Derwin James is what everyone actually thinks Jamal Adams is. He's a guy who can fly around the box, make big hits, make big plays, but he is a major athlete in the secondary. He can can line up in coverage. He can go man-to-man. He can play the zone. And he can be a force down in the box. He's kind of, I talked about with the Chiefs a little bit, evolving the game a little bit in the linebacker position. Derwin James is what everyone wants in a safety now. Just a do-it-all, all-around guy. And he slid in the draft. And I think a lot of people are forgetting about him. He's going to be fantastic, and he's going to be a top-five safety in the league if he can play all 17 games this season. So
1: now, going to a third spot in the AFC West, who do you have coming in there? For me, it's the uh, Las Vegas Raiders. I don't think I'm ever going to get used to saying that. Uh, at 7-10, and 10, again, it's those, those coin flip games and playing in a tough division, just having a tough schedule overall. There are just question marks about this team that they don't have an answer to. Their pass rush has been non-existent. They added some rushers in the draft. But uh, first-year guys, rookies, you're not sure how effective they're going to be right away. And then I think just as a whole, their defense is lacking. Offensively, you haven't had much around Derek Carr. Josh Jacobs, fantastic running back. You need to really focus your offense through him and probably go in a sort of play-action Offense, kind of West Coast style, run first and then go play action after. I I think they could be good, but I'm not committing to it. That's why they're at uh, seven and ten. Yeah, for me, I have the Raiders in
0: third as well. I have them coming in at five and twelve. I have them just a little bit lower than you do. And when I think about this Raiders team, there's just things I don't like. It starts with the free agent philosophy they have. They bring in a lot of veterans who are kind of really past their primes and expect them to get like a one good year, two good years out of them. It doesn't pan out for them because as a team, they're not necessarily ready to be a one-year window, go win a championship type team. So some guys they brought in this offseason, I question. You bring in John Brown. He's getting up there in age. There's some better receivers out there you could have brought in if that's really what you wanted to upgrade. Casey Hayward Jr., the corner, bringing him in. He's older now. He's not the same guy. He's a talented corner, but he's dealing with injuries. And then also, they had the shocking move. They waived Maurice Hurst and Arden Key. Maurice Hurst, one of their better defensive tackles on this team, which still confused me that they released him. But, and also, I'm not the biggest fan of John Gruden in terms of what he does as a coach. When you look at it, he had a Raiders team early on that had Tim Brown. Jerry Rice, Charles Woodson, and a fantastic loaded defense. Couldn't win the big ones with them. Then he goes to Tampa Bay, wins the Super Bowl. Tampa Bay was a loaded roster, a loaded defense. Offensively, they had weapons. That team was ready to win a Super Bowl, and he got gifted that team. And it was, okay, now you can go win a Super Bowl. And since then, everyone's thought John Gruden is just some offensive guru, like we see Andy Reid talked about and Sean McVay talked about he's not that. When he got that 10-year, $100 million contract, I was like, oh, wow. That's a lot of money. And 10 years for John Gruden, not a huge fan of it. And I'm still not a huge fan of it. Their draft they had this offseason, they did typical Raiders things. You overreach on players, but then you grab a couple later that are nice uh, grabs, you could call. But I'm just not a huge fan of the philosophy of this team. And the Gruden-Mike Mayock situation there, I think it's coming to an end at some point. It's got to, I think, a 5-12 and 12 season this year with your quarterback in place, with those pieces that you talked about with those guys in place, it's time to start looking in different directions. I think that kind of starts this year. And like you said, a tough division for them. I don't picture them doing all that well. And now the final spot in the AFC West, the fourth spot, we both have the Denver
1: Broncos. Why do you have Denver there? I have Denver... Because I just they don't really have an identity. I have them definitely a higher record than most people. Cause I really like Vic Fangio. He's just a defensive guru. He's just fantastic. Uh, I have them tied uh, for third, seven and ten. Uh, they lose the tiebreakers there. Not that it really matters. Uh, their defense is going to be very good. It wasn't great last year, but you've brought in a decent amount of pieces. Bradley Chubb and Von Miller are going into the season healthy. You add Kyle Fuller in free agency for relatively cheap. He he was to the Broncos like that incredibly quickly. And I think this secondary with the addition of Sertan is going to be one of the better secondaries in the league. With a defensive-minded head coach, they can really lock up teams. It's just the offense. It's not good. It's not good. You don't really have any identity. You don't know who your quarterback is. There isn't a whole lot of big-name starters, if any, on that offense. So you need something on offense, and I don't think you have it.
0: Yeah, I have the Broncos actually coming up four and thirteen. And when I look at it, it hundred percent starts with Drew Locke and Teddy Bridgewater. I don't know what that situation is. I know you're trying to see you want a competition there for Drew Locke. And we'll get into that in a little bit later. But in terms of what you're doing there, I I don't like the situation at quarterback. I don't really necessarily like either of them. The defense, like you said, has improved and I love Vic Fangio too, but he's going to be the coach that he's gonna build this team up and then he's gonna get fired before he sees any of their success. That's what's gonna happen here with this team. The defense is getting there. They're young, they need a couple years to develop. Offensively, the only thing I do like is their weapons. You look at Jerry Judy, Cortland Sutton, Noah Fant. I like those three. That's a that's three building blocks for you offensively. Outside of that. You have Garrett Bowles in the offensive line who just extended, who's not terrible, but I wouldn't consider him a top-tier left tackle in the NFL, but he's a good one at that. This team is going to struggle, and yes, it does have to do with the division they're in. This team cannot compete with the Chiefs. They can't compete with the Chargers team that has loaded on offense. Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, Justin Herbert. And then you look at this Raiders team. I'd venture to say that I like the Raiders roster better than I'd like this Broncos roster right now. And so I would they that's gonna be a good competition, I think. Those two, they'll be battling it out there. I had them a game apart, but this Denver team, they're a couple of years out. They are a couple of years out. And within that couple of years, that's when you have to find that quarterback and lock down that quarterback position. Because they want Drew Locke to be the guy, but is he? And if you want Drew Locke to be the guy, Why are we pushing a battle between Teddy Bridgewater? Yes, I know you want the friendly competition. You want Locke to improve. At the same time, though, you can have that, but Drew Locke has to be your starter if that's the guy you want to see out there. So that concludes our AFC West predictions. It's going to move us into some six burning questions on this NFL offseason that still have yet to be answered. We're going to start with the Dolphins. Will the Dolphins still give Tua a limited offense like he had last season?
1: I think so. Uh, I think they're going to give him a limited offense. It's not going to be as limited as it was last year. He's gotten another year with the playbook, another year with uh, the guys on his team. You've given him another weapon. I think he's, he's ready to take the next step forward uh, either this year or next year if he if he does take the next step forward uh he's i think he's going to be pretty talented they have a lot of speed in their receiving core and he can he can use that uh i think effectively it's it's there there are still question marks about him though so and Brian Flores i don't think is fully sold on Tua so he's going to be limited and he's going to have to prove himself and I think he's up to that task.
0: Yeah, I, I'm with Brian Flores a little bit. I'm not quite yet sold on Tua um, like some people are. He has the talent to do it. I'm just a little worried about it, and I don't like the way that they brought him along. Last season, why in the biggest moments after you benched Ryan Fitzpatrick, after he got out to a good start, the team was being successful, you still benched him for Tua after the bye. Why in the biggest moments of the year, Did you continuously pull him out and let Fitzpatrick come in and win those games for you? Those are moments that in a year that you still went 10-6, missed the playoffs, looking back on it, wouldn't you have wanted Tua to play in those moments, get that uh, development, and understand what it's like to win big games, close games? He doesn't have any of that now. Will they give him a limited offense? I think you have to. Because he's not ready, and if you rush this, you're going to be looking for a new quarterback once again. Like I said, I'm not sold on him, but by week 8, you have to have the training wheels off this offense. You have to be going on all cylinders, so whatever it takes to get Tua uh, into that situation, you have to do it. But you've put yourself in a situation where you couldn't take the training wheels off week 1. The Dolphins did that to themselves, and I think the way we're looking at it right now, I think Tua can be successful. I'm just not sold yet. I have to see more from him. I've not seen him in the biggest moments. That's my one, my one concern with him, the biggest moments. So I think you do have to give him a limited offense. If I was the coach, I wouldn't want to. But the situation you put yourself in, you now have to. And now, looking at it, Jamal Adams didn't show up to many camps. Do you think Jamal Adams will hold out in hopes of a new contract? I think he
1: will, but it's a bad decision. Uh, He wants a big contract. He was promised a big contract when he was traded to Seattle. And in a year uh, coming into the year before a contract year, a really pivotal time for establishing your value, he played extremely poorly. He was bad. He just couldn't really hold on or just play average on uh, in coverage. He had nine and a half sacks, which is I think a record for most sacks by a DB. But you, that that's great. That's a fantastic thing. But what you wanted is a defensive back, and he's not been able to play well in pass uh, in pass coverage, so that's definitely going to be a problem there. He wants big money, and the Seahawks, I don't think, are going to pay him big money right now, so I believe he's going to hold out, and it's not going to be successful. We saw with Le'Veon Bell that turned out pretty poorly for him. I think Jamal Adams is going to hold out at least through a couple preseason games, and then join the team reluctantly.
0: Yeah, I think Jamal Adams holds out, and you made a ton of great points. He was horrific in pass coverage last year. Terrible. Nine-half sacks is nice, but they didn't trade two ones for a linebacker. That's not what they brought him in to do. Jamal Adams is going to hold out because you look at it, he didn't play all that great last year, but he was in a position that he could get away with that Because you look at the Seattle Seahawks traded two ones and some other picks to and Bradley McDougal to the Jets for Jamal Adams. Are you gonna give all that up for two years, maybe, if he comes back this season, two years of safety play just for him to walk. When Jamal Adams got traded for that many picks, he got a blank in my mind from the Seattle Seahawks, he got a blank check and it was, okay, if you don't pay me, I'll leave. And can you justify giving up two first-round picks for someone who's gone within two years and no playoff success? Seahawks haven't won a playoff game in years. It's something that goes unrecognized, but they haven't. They haven't won a playoff game in years. This team won the NFC West, tough division, just to get knocked out by the Rams round one. It's not looking great for Seattle's future, and it's only going to get worse because Jamal Adams was your go-all-in. Compete in this NFC West. You don't have any more picks. You lost your two ones. So right now, Jamal Adams has all the cards on his in the table for him. He can do whatever he wants, and that's going to hurt the Seahawks in the long run. But I agree with you 100%. He probably is going to want 18 to 20 million at his safety spot. He wants to reset the safety market like every player has the last couple of years. We've seen reset markets each offseason the last two years. He sh- he doesn't deserve it whatsoever. But the Seahawks, you're going to have to justify paying the money or justify trading two picks for him. You get to decide which one you want to do. Our next one we have here, where will Richard Sherman play next season? Still a free agent, older in age, but still one of the smartest corners in the league. Where is he going to play next year?
1: I think uh, there are two big landing spots. Going back to San Francisco is... Just a logical decision. He left there on okay terms. There were some things he said after that he wouldn't be a 49er again, but the lack of interest, I think, has kind of changed that. And I think a one that's kind of slept on is the Cowboys. The Cowboys are in desperate need of uh, defensive help in the secondary. And for right now, Richard Sherman can be a stopgap, a pretty valuable stopgap, right now in free agency. Just in the timeline of free agency, you weren't going to see big contracts, so he's not going to get paid ten million for a year. I I think he's going to sign a one year deal, uh. And the Cowboys have about five million in cap. I think that's a pretty good amount to pay Richard Sherman for a year's service.
0: Yeah, when Sherman hit free agency last time, he was one of the hottest names. No one thought he was going to be out there. And he didn't really do much looking, you could say. The first team that called him was the 49ers, and he signed with the 49ers. He had phone meetings with the Lions and the Raiders, but they couldn't give him the offer the 49ers could because they had the money. So he goes there. Right now in his career, he can't afford to go somewhere that's a mid-level team. It's contender or bust for him. So that's why I think when you look at the teams that would be in play for him, I just think the 49ers make the most sense. I think the Cowboys are a team that makes sense as well, but in terms of where they're at, they still have question marks around that team. I think he comes back to San Francisco on a one-year, let's say, I believe one-year $4 one-year three and a half. I think that's where you see him sign at and he probably already in his head kind of knows where he's going to end up going but I mean we've seen veterans in the last CBA they didn't want training camp and mini camps to be a thing. They kind of want all online off season and then a little training camp at the end. Not anything near what they have. I have a feeling I know when he's going to sign. It's going to be right around training camp. He's not going to do all this off season stuff. Richard Sherman's one of the best to ever do it the cornerback position. He doesn't need you go through these offseason, uh, different practices, mini-camps, things like that, just going through the motions. He doesn't need any of that. He could step right back in. Will he be a starter? I think he's going to have to work for that on this 49ers team right now. You got Emmanuel Mosley, a young corner that they've really developed, and they want to be a starter for this team and is really good at man-to-man coverage, something Richard Sherman lacks in. And they just paid Jason Verrett a one-year deal to come back. They expect him to start as well. They, they kept him around throughout the injuries. They really liked what they saw. So I think it's going to be a good competition. But I think he ends up back in San Francisco this late in the process. And also, I mean, you look at these contending teams. They don't have to worry about in terms of losing picks later, compensatory picks. The deadline's passed. So now you can sign whoever you want, and it won't affect your compensatory formula to gain picks the next season. So I expect Richard Sherman to sign here. In the next month, he's going to sign somewhere right before camp starts. I believe the Niners camp starts July 28th. They actually start practicing on 31st. I expect him to be signed right around then. And now we're going to do one more burning question before we take our last break here on Sportsman Like Conduct. Looking at the Broncos situation, we talked about it. Teddy B or Drew Locke? Who you start in week one?
1: I I personally am starting Teddy Bridgewater. I have pretty much always been in training. Teddy Bridgewater fan. Uh, he was, I think he didn't get a full opportunity in Minnesota, especially with that just awful injury. He played okay in uh, New Orleans and not all that great in Carolina, uh, but he didn't have a great team around him in Carolina. Uh, but just comparing the numbers, Drew Locke was worse. He was just straight up worse. I think their weapons are somewhat comparable uh, in talent level, if not swinging Drew Locke's way. He has, I think, better ones. His uh, touchdown to TD, TD to interception ratio was bad. He had the most interceptions in the league. But I think the biggest factor in this is who's making the decision on starting quarterback. John Elway said he's taking a step back. He's not really involved with personnel. I'm not sure if that's true. And if John Elway has a significant say, I think it's going to be Drew Locke because there's nothing Elway likes more than a tall, white quarterback.
0: Yet, yeah, I look at this situation, when it comes to who I'm starting, I'm going to leave that aside because I'm not a huge fan of either, but when I look at the Denver Broncos, they've shown that they want Drew Locke to be the guy. They've kept him around, given him opportunity after opportunity, brought in weapons. They've shown that they want him to be the guy. If that's the case, I don't know why Teddy B would start Week 1. You, you need to figure out this year, it's make or break for Drew Locke. So I get bringing in the veteran. You can push him. But if Teddy B goes out there and starts Week 1 for this Broncos team, why should Drew Locke be on your roster next year? He shouldn't be. I don't think there's a good point you can make as to why he should be on your team if that's the case. So for me, Teddy Bridgewater starts week one, Locke's gone next year. And then you're still looking for a quarterback. Best case scenario for your team, Teddy B pushes Drew Locke, and he finally turns into something for you. Likelihood of that, not great, but you can give it an opportunity. I think this is the last gasp for Drew Locke, just... Final sh- final shot, final opportunity for him. We're going to take our final break here on Sportsmanlike Conduct. When we come back, we'll go through our two last burning questions, touch on a big NFL extension, and get into some MLB talk. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back in to Sportsmanlike Conduct on KLA HC2 and the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howell. With me, as always, is David Meyer. And we're going to continue through our NFL burning offseason questions. Next one we have up here, next two, about rookie quarterbacks, The first one, will Trey Lance get a legitimate chance to start for this 49ers team?
1: Uh, I'm giving Lance a chance. Definitely rhymed on purpose. Uh, And I think Shanahan is too. He just is open to pretty much any option at quarterback. And I think Trey Lance is going to perform very well in uh, mini camps, OTAs, training camp, and the preseason. And I think he's going to perform better than Jimmy G, and he's probably going to get that starting job. That's just my prediction. Uh, I think Jimmy G has a little bit of like a lead on Trey Lance, just from being a starter, being in the NFL for a while. But I think Trey Lance can definitely come up with a good uh, preseason, a good training camp, and be a starter week one possibly
0: yeah I, I 100% think week one's a realistic a timeline for Trey Lance when you look at it they traded all those picks to go up and get Trey Lance his biggest knock in college was what he doesn't have the experience how you get more experience oh you put him out there and play you look what 49ers quarterbacks have done the last two seasons it's not anything Trey Lance couldn't do I mean You have a lot of jets, jet sweeps, a lot of orbital motions, a lot of screens, checkdowns, and putting receivers in open positions and just hitting them and letting the receivers do the work. Trey Lance can step in and do that, day one. I don't think that would be all that difficult of him. I think 100% right now what it is is Trey Lance, he is wanted to be the starter by Kyle Shanahan. That's what he wants. If he could get to the side, he would be the starter week one. And I don't think there's anything Jimmy Garoppolo can do over camp, and even if he does start the first few weeks, to stop Trey Lance from taking over at some point this year. There's nothing that he can do. The only thing he can do is improve his trade value to get traded in the following offseason. That's really it. Kyle, It's he said it repeatedly. Trey Lance, this is his team when he shows he's ready. Who decides when he's ready? Kyle Shanahan. And I bet it's a lot earlier than some people think. I would not be surprised to see week one. Trey Lance goes out there with this team. I think Kyle's just so excited. We talk about positionless football. That's what Kyle loves. He loves putting positionless football out there. Now you have a quarterback who's a running threat, a true running threat for this offense. Now you have a now you have the quarterback who's a positionless type, can run, can throw. You got the fullback, the tight end, the receivers that play running back at times. It just adds to Kyle's offense. And John Lynch said that coming home from pro days, Trey, he was writing up plays for Trey Lance already. He's ready. He wants to do this thing. And I think the only thing holding him back from saying it now is the, sh- the backlash it would get towards Jimmy Garoppolo at that point in this roster for not giving a true chance to Jimmy Garoppolo. And I, I don't, at the end of the day, I think this is Trey Lance's team by week three at the latest, would not be surprised by week one. And now we move on to the Bears quarterback situation. Matt Nagy has repeatedly said that Andy Dalton is the starter and Justin Fields will come along and that they could do what the Chiefs did and let Justin Fields sit for a whole entire year. Now, do you believe that or do you think that this quarterback competition will truly be a competition?
1: It's not going to be a competition. There's going to be some competition elements, but that's just something that happens in uh, training camp. I think it is Andy Dalton's job, unless there's an injury or he's just completely terrible, worse than Foles and Trubisky. That's the only way uh, Fields is starting. And I don't think it's a good decision. I don't think it's a smart choice. He, uh, Justin Fields has shown he is a very capable college quarterback. He's uh, shown a lot in training camp. And I'm just not all that sold on Andy Dalton, but Matt Nagy is stubborn. He he said something, and he's going to stick to it. He said Andy Dalton's the starter, and he's not going to back down from that, even if it makes complete sense to go with Justin Fields.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that one. I think Dalton is the starter, and I don't agree with it whatsoever. Justin Fields is a guy that... He's won at every single level, high school, college, big-time schools. And he's out there winning, setting records. And I think when you put look at this Bears situation right now, are they a better team with Andy Dalton or Justin Fields as a rookie? It's Justin Fields. That's the way it is. You put your team in the best position to succeed. And if I was Matt Nagy, and I'm looking at my offense and I know what I have, I know that Allen Robinson's on the franchise tag right now. And the Bears won't be able to afford to tag him for a second time because that price goes up even higher. And receivers are going to get paid. By t- uh, Devontae Adams has a contract coming up. He could get paid shooting that price up even more just regardless of being tagged once or twice. You cannot afford to do that again. And how do you want to keep him around? Hey, we have this new quarterback, and he's really good. We're going to put him out there, and you guys can get this de- develop a chemistry with one another. Because if Justin Fields and Allen Robinson can get chemistry and get going early on, this Bears offense will instantly be better than it has been, you could argue, since Cutler days. If Justin Fields and Alan Robinson can get it going right away. It will be the best offense Bears fans have seen in years. And that just is, it's not a knock at the Bears and their offense, but more of a praise of Justin Fields. He's that good of a quarterback. And I love Justin Fields and what he does on the football field. He's fantastic. I'm starting him week one, putting the Bears in the best position to compete. Rodgers, there's question marks around him. If Rodgers doesn't play, the Packers instantly take a step back, and that division's open. Go win it with Justin Fields. So now we're going to look at a big offseason headline. Ryan Ram's check gets a huge extension. Right tackled the New Orleans Saints five years, 96 million. I believe it's about 19 and a half a year That's what that comes out to. Looking at this move, do you think the Saints are still a force within the NFC?
1: I think they aren't. They just they don't have the cap to maneuver around their uh, star players and role players and just starters as a whole are aging and are declining. And you really have no cap to work with. Your best... Your most important player on offense just retired. And I don't think you can replace that. Solidifying a good uh, right tackle is, I think, just a smart move uh, long-term and short-term. Because it also gives you the ability, if you're really, really rebuilding, you can trade him for some picks. But I think... uh, The Saints are just going to be not good. A small caveat to that, I expect Jameis Winston to be pretty solid. I think he's going to surprise some people. I'm on the famous Jameis hype train. Uh, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or not. Well,
0: we will soon find out. Are the Saints still a force in the NFC? No. Not in terms of what they were. And you look at other NFC teams, they are... You look at some other the top teams in the NFC, they're clearly better than the Saints at this point. The Saints, since Drew Brees have got there, are consistently a top three team, if not top two team in the NFC, outside those couple years in the middle of last decade where they missed the playoffs. But they're consistently a very good team. Top offenses in the league. Defense, it kind of fluctuates year in and year out if they're good or not. But they were always a force. You never wanted to go to New Orleans and play them. They were a tough out every single year. Now, not so much. I have the Saints this year, my record predictions coming in at 8-9 on the year. I think that's what they're going to be. They're going to be average. I mean, if they played in the NFC East, yeah, sure, you're still going to make the postseason. But they're not. They don't play in that division. They play in a very tough division that has Tom Brady in it. You just can't be successful or win your division when you're going up against a Bucks team that's loaded at every single position across the board when you just lost... Um, obviously, your quarterback. So for me, I don't think the Saints are still forced, but I like the extension at that because you are locking up the younger guys. And now it brings me to my next point. Do you believe the Saints believe in this Saints team building strategy? We've seen the Rams do it, we've seen the Chiefs do it. And now you everyone talks about how the cap is fake, but a team like the Saints, who have gone through that where the cap is fake, they bring in all these guys, now got hit by it. Do you like what the Saints have been doing now that they've been gotten hit by that cap charge?
1: Not really. That being said, I don't think there is really another option. You don't. That there isn't a way out there. You don't really have any options other than cutting or trading away guys who are very valuable to your team, just to. Basically, just to be able to play, you have to cut or trade starters. And it's only going to get worse. Right now, uh, with the cap at 182 million, they're 5 million uh, under the cap. Next year, the cap is predicted to jump up to 208 million, and they're 14 million under the cap right now. It's it's only going to get worse. And I'm actually kind of excited because with the introduction of the cap and a lot of restructuring, I think this is the first time a team's really going to get hampered by the cap and restructuring of deals and putting it off. And I think it's going to hit the Saints really hard. And I'm interested to see how that's going to pan out.
0: Yeah, it it's hit the Saints very hard. It's going to continue to. But in terms of how they're responding to it, I like what they're doing, the direction they're going. They're locking up their young franchise pieces. Alvin Kamara, locked up, long-term contract. Mike Thomas, locked up, long-term contract. Ryan Ramscheck, your star right tackle, now locked up. And you're building into the future. You're not going to be a good team the next two to three years while you try to fix where your money's going, things like that. But these young star players... Extend them. Get their, their get them their money. But any average or good player on your team has to go. But extend all these young elite guys. Because once your window opens back up, you want to have Alvin Kamara, Mike Thomas, Ryan Ramchick to make a run with. So I like how they've handled it so far. But it's only going to get more interesting as to how they keep going from there. But I like so far what they've done. And now... Just an interesting, real quick here, a topic that got brought up this week. Derek Carr and Devontae Adams in the media went back and forth. They were very glowing of each other and kind of shared a mutual interest to possibly play with each other again because they did play together at Fresno State in college. Could you ever see a Derek Carr-Devontae Adams duo coming together
1: again? And do you think it would be a good one? I think it would be definitely a good one. There are questions about Derek Carr, but he's never had the best weapons I think the most likely scenario would be Aaron Rodgers leaves the Packers they're kind of in shambles because Jordan Love isn't the answer there at least I believe he isn't the answer and they trade Devontae Adams away to the Raiders I think that's the most likely scenario if the other alternative is Devontae Adams walking in free agency but I doubt that's going to happen so, I, I really do think it could happen, and it would be definitely fun to watch. Yeah,
0: it, it's re- very realistic, especially if the Raiders are still in Oakland. Because when you look at it, Fonte Adams from California, that's where he grew up, grew up in the Bay Area. I mean, the Raiders could have been his favorite team growing up. I'm not going to say they were, but you look, two Bay Area teams, opportunity pl- to play for one of those teams that you watched growing up, and it's your former college quarterback. Absolutely, I could see something like that happening because you look at all these big-name free agents and where they end up, a lot of these guys that are smart about where they go instead of just going to the bad teams because they offer the most money, they go to teams where they have connections, whether you can pinpoint, okay, former coach, and that's why he's ending up there, or, oh, former teammates here, that's why he's ending up there. I could see that happening. And Devontae Adams would instantly become the best receiver that Derek Carr's ever had. And Derek Carr, he played with Amari Cooper, Amari Cooper's not on the same level as Devontae Adams. Adams is one of, if not the best, route runners in the NFL. His constant ability to get open with Henry Ruggs, it would be exciting. It really would be. But you've got to figure out where the Raiders are going, and that could have a say in Devontae Adams. I know he'd like to play with his former teammate, but if the Raiders don't have a great year and they stick things out with John Gruden, John Gruden and Mike Mayock, do you want to go there? I, it'd be a serious question for him. So now we're going to move into some Major League Baseball talk here. Mariners pitcher Hector Santiago busted for foreign substances and he has been suspended. He was the first
1: to get in trouble, you could say. Will there be more? I think so. I I really do believe uh, guys are going to get bounced, uh, suspended, fined, all that. But there is a kind of question around this because Santiago maintains that it was just a mixture of sweat and rosin which if he is to be believed which definite question mark around that if uh, you believe that and it was just a mix of sweat and rosin he he was uh, it's been really hot across all the U.S. and he was sweating really hard, a little bit of rosin mixed with that, gets on your glove that needs to be taken account into account in this rule the fact that they aren't even determining the substance that the MLB isn't figuring out what it actually is is a problem they need to say alright we're gonna take your glove figure out what it is you're going to get kicked out of the game for just having anything on it, but you won't get suspended if it just turns out to be rosin.
0: Yeah, and I think Santiago in this point, he's kind of the guinea pig for the MLB. They're kind of just figuring out how they want to go about everything at this point, how they're going to, how they're going to enforce it, things like that. He's the first one, and if MLB continues to go about it the way that they have with him so far, you're going to upset a lot of people. You're going to set a lot of teams, a lot of managers, a lot of pitchers, and it's going to be a serious problem. They have to find better ways of going about it, enforcing it, and finding punishments for it. Because like you said, in this situation specifically, yes, no pitcher is going to admit to it probably. They're probably going to try to fight it in some sense. But you should have expected that. You're going to have to prove it in a way. And that should have been something that was accounted for and it wasn't. So I definitely think there is going to be more, but I I agree with you. It's going to be interesting to see how they handle it because I don't think they handled it the best here, and it's got to improve because I, w- I think they will find more as the year goes along. That brings us to our next point here. Do you think pitchers can find ways to get creative and kind of hide the use of substance to get around these checks?
1: Yeah. Players have been doing it for years Decades, it's been a thing for a long time Uh, Guys just got lazy with it Because they could They didn't need to be very secretive About just getting some uh, sticky stuff on your hands And going to work I think it's not going to happen I I think guys aren't going to try it For a while because they're getting checked so closely. But after a while, umpires aren't going to be as scrutinizing. They're not going to look as closely. And you might be able to get away with some stuff. I think that's that's the likely outcome in this scenario. Yeah, I, I think it's like almost
0: any rule in life. Any rule you set, someone's going to try to get around it and still do that, even if it's against the rules. And I think that's just going to be another scenario in that and especially, I mean, you look at how this first uh, situation was handled here. You're going to see people that say, oh, no, it, it wasn't that. It wasn't uh, wasn't a foreign substance. It's fine. It's fine. And if they can't find ways to prove it, you're going to have all types of players that would be like, okay, no. And then they can't prove it. And for years, be like, okay, well, that really wasn't. It really wasn't a foreign substance back then. I didn't use that. Uh, the MLB, uh, they falsely um, suspended me for things like that. It's not going to look good for the image of the sport. And I think that's the one thing pitchers right now have going for them is right now, the MLB doesn't look great for the Santiago situation right now. That's what they have right now. How do you respond to that? Could it be laxer on the checks? If that's a situation, you're instantly going to have players that find ways around the rule. It's just the way it is. So, I think it's going to be interesting to see how it continues, but there do does need to be some sort of change. And now, looking at an L.A. Angel star, Shohei Itani, he's been on a tear recently, and he's been hyped up as one of the best players in the MLB as of late. If you were building an MLB franchise, would he be the first player
1: that you'd want to add to your team to build your team with? I'm going to say no, but he is just incredibly talented i love him as a pitcher as a batter a fielder as just a personality i think he's fantastic for the game but my main two concerns if i'm starting a franchise i want someone very young like 21 22 young Wander franco comes to mind uh Guerrero Jr., Fernando Tatis Jr. Those are probably where I'm going. Shohei Otani is only 26. It's not like he's up there nearing 30, but he has shown injury problems and just a couple years older. So while he does give you two aspects and two sides to his player, I think the injuries and the little bit of age uh, bring him down
0: yeah I agree I mean obviously injuries and then also being older but I'm gonna say yeah I'm gonna go with it just because how exciting it is when you look at it I want a player who's gonna come in instantly and you can't find me another player that can hit as well as him field as well as him and pitch as well as he does sure you can find better in each individual aspect of the game But you give me a guy who can do all three of those things right off the bat like that for my franchise, and not to mention, he's one of the most liked players in the MLB, and fans love him. My franchise is going to sell a lot of jerseys right off the bat. It's another aspect to look at. But just those three things that he can provide my team, I'm going to take the risk on it, on the injuries and the older age, and hope that I can be successful with him and continue to build my team. And obviously that takes you into a whole different topic, continuing to build your team from there on out. But just having such a high skill level in all three of those aspects of the game, I just don't think you can find that anywhere else. And so now our last topic here of the show tonight. Last couple of weeks, we've looked at our most exciting weekend matchups moving forward. David, what is your most exciting weekend matchup this weekend?
1: I am very excited about the upcoming Subway series. I think it's going to be a great game. Uh, great series. Mets, Yankees, two teams near the top of their divisions. It's about nearing halfway through the season, and that's when you really get that playoff race pressure. Right now, the Yankees are seven and a half games back. They... uh. Pretty much are demolishing the uh, Angels right now. Shohei Otani didn't have a great out- outing, only two thirds, uh, only yeah, two thirds of an inning. But the Yankees haven't been great. Their hitting has been up and down, and their pitching, besides Garrett Cole, was uh, suspect. Is the word I'm gonna go with? The Mets, pretty similar. Jacob DeGrom is carrying this team. There are, he he's just fantastic. If he keeps up this pace, he's this is probably gonna go down as the best single pitching season ever. And I'm excited to see uh, how he keeps that going. He's also been hitting pretty well, like in total, not just for a pitcher. Uh, but it that's gonna be an interesting series to watch. Yeah, and if I was building my MLB franchise
0: and I had to go off today's today's game, wouldn't look great for me after Shohei's performance. But my most exciting weekend matchup, I'm gonna go with the Eastern Conference Final. What we got going on right now, Bucks Hawks right now series tied at two apiece. You look at both sides of it, injuries to their star players. That's one interesting aspect of this game for me. But also, you look at it by team. The Milwaukee Bucks, they need. To go to the finals. They need to be able to beat this Hawks team. They've been hyped up as one of the best teams in the East. And now they're going up against a Hawks team. that it isn't the 76ers. And it isn't the Brooklyn Nets. You should beat this team and move on. And go to the finals. Will you? You're going to find out. Then you look at this Hawks team. They're young. No one really expected them to be in this position. And they have an opportunity to go to the finals. Very early on in Trey Young's career. And they can start to show how respected they should be within the East and start to scare teams and start to continue and develop because they got, they're gaining all this playoff experience so young, they could be a real threat moving forward after this. So I look at this series and just how much could spread off of this series is really exciting to me. And it's tied up at 2-2. I mean, there's two good games at least left to be played in this series. So that concludes this episode of Unsportsmanlike Conduct. If you're on social media, Instagram or Twitter, follow us at KLA underscore UC and also give us a like. If you're on Facebook, look us up at Unsportsmanlike Conduct. That concludes this episode. Thank you for listening and good night. See ya.